It's always interesting to me as, as surveys and censuses come out on different topics, whether political polling or behavioral research or just gathering opinions, at least in North America, there's almost always this subcategory uh, specific to Christians. Where do Christians rank? And, and what they mean by Christian uh, is this very precise definition. It's those who have checked the box that says, I am a Christian. And as a result, there's some interesting statistics that come out of that. Um, here are a couple of, of true life examples from a survey in the United States. Uh, so it's a little bit maybe different from here, but not too much. 45% of quote-unquote Christians, those who check the box, 45% believe that abortion should be legal in most or all cases. 50% of quote-unquote Christians believe that humans evolved to our present form. Now listen to this, only 39% of Christians believe that God's word is to be taken literally. Only 70% of Christians believe in hell and only 85% of Christians believe in heaven. Like, what is Christianity if you don't believe in a heaven or a hell? What, what, are, what is it that you're believing in? The, the same survey showed that 40% of non-Christians still believe in heaven. And yet only 85% of Christians believe in heaven? What does that even mean? And so it's interesting. They would call themselves Christians. They would check that box but then by the things that they believe and the way that they conduct their lives, they, they begin to draw into question, at very least, the, the validity of that claim, or if they even know what it means. I always thought it would be interesting, what would happen to those numbers if instead of checking the box to say, yes, I'm a Christian, um, it was to maybe narrow it down to those who attended church 30 times or more that year, or those who've read the Bible cover to cover at least once, or read the Bible four times that week. What would happen then? What would those numbers look like? But, but are those questions even fair? Is that the right place to, to draw that line? And if not that question, what question? I know it's an unpopular position, but it, it seems pretty obvious to me that there are people who consider themselves to be Christians, honestly, sincerely believe themselves to be Christians, and are wrong about that belief. And where do we draw the line? And if, and if there are people out there who truly, sincerely believe themselves to be Christians and are in fact not, how do I know I'm not one of them? How do I know I'm not self-deceived? What does it mean to be a true Christian? What a huge question. And, and I think that's a question that we can get an answer for looking at Philippians 3. Paul is uh, approaching this question from a bit of a unique angle. Um, but turn with me there, Philippians 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, now's your chance. Go grab one. You're going to need it. We want you to have it open in your lap um, so that you're looking down and saying, um, you know, this guy's a little crazy, but what he's saying is here. What he's saying is true. I can see it for myself in God's Word. Um, if you don't have a Bible in your house, esv.org. It's right there. You can, you can open that up in another window. Um, or I love what Josh said last week. If you actually don't have a Bible, or I think just as important, if you don't have one that you can read easily, if it's like written 
you know, 300 years ago and you can't understand the English, direct message us. We will bring one sanitized and dropped on your front step. Um, we want you to have God's word. We will not neglect that. Um, so, Philippians 3, looking at, at verses 1 to 11. Now, if you were here last week, you may be picking up on the inconsistency. Josh preached on verses 12 to 16, um, the, the verses that come after these ones. And so, yeah, we're a little out of order. Um, just kind of the way things happen. Josh had that sermon uh, in progress um, for some time now. And with the pandemic and shuffling things, that's the way it worked out. So um, just invite you to kind of have that in mind. We're, we're setting the stage for what Josh said last week in uh, um, moving toward this idea of, uh, of pressing toward the goal, forgetting what lies behind and striving on for the upward call that is in Christ Jesus. Um, but you'll notice chapter 3 here starts with the word finally. And, and I know preachers are prone to do that. Um, I try not to, but, but finally, and then they go on for another 25 minutes. Um, I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. I think finally maybe is not quite the right translation. Um, it's not conclusion, but it is a transition. He, he's moving on to the next thing. Um, so far, he's written to them about this gospel-focused unity that he wants them to have as a church, about gospel-focused humility that brings about that, that unity as we walk together. And, and now he wants to bring them back, just plain and simple, to a gospel-focused faith. That's what he's about. This is what it means to be a true Christian. A gospel-focused faith. Ah, and so let me read these verses, follow along as I read. Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, Accounted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for how it cuts and convicts and challenges us. Thank You that it confronts us. Lord, thank You that it comforts us. Thank you that it builds us up and strengthens us, that it points us back to your glory. God, give us eyes to see this morning. Be at work in our hearts. I want to know you, Lord. 
We want to understand what Paul means here. We want to see the, the surpassing value of your glory. To count all things as loss for the sake of knowing you. So God, would you be lifting our eyes to see your glory afresh in the face of Jesus Christ this morning. We beg you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is a true believer? Well, first, a true believer rejoices in Christ. He rejoices in Christ. That's where Paul starts. Rejoice in the Lord. That's a huge statement. What it means to be a true believer has less to do with what happens in your mind and, and, and less to do with what happens with your hands and everything to do with what's going on in your heart. It's a question of rejoicing, a question of joy. I'm show you what I mean. Paul tells them, rejoice in the Lord. And a lot of people take that statement as if it kind of stands on its own. And, and actually, uh, the ESV even has a, a paragraph break there between verses 1 and 2, and, 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 and they shouldn't. This, this is one consistent thought. Um, rejoice in the Lord doesn't stand all by itself. Um, he goes on to say, I write the same thing to you. It's no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. Why is it safe? What's the context here? What's the, what's the danger that they're in um, where rejoicing in the Lord is safe? And he goes on to tell them, look out. Look out for the danger, the danger that has to be guarded against by rejoicing in the Lord. Look out for those dogs, those evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Now, this is not okay today. You can't talk this way. Um, I've taken heat over the years for calling out false teachers by name, told that's, that's not the right thing to do, that's not kind, that's not loving. We can't be seen to be talking bad about other preachers. But Jesus warned, Matthew seven fifteen, Beware of the false prophets. Listen, they come to you in sheep's clothing. They look nice. If, if they came as evil men saying horrible things, they wouldn't be false teachers, would they? They, they wouldn't be there in sheep's clothing leading people astray. They look gentle. They look, they look well-intentioned. They look smart. They're friendly and winsome and kind. But inwardly, underneath that, they're ravenous wolves. That's what Jesus warns. And, and so Paul, uh, writing to the, the elders in Ephesus, um, tells them, keep careful watch, careful guard over your flock, over the church in Ephesus, Acts 20, 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. It will happen. There will be false teachers, no question. And so I just want to challenge you, if you look out over the array of popular teachers right now, and, and you're just A-okay with everybody, you're missing something. You're being deceived. There are false teachers in our world today. And here Paul is warning the church in Philippi about a particular group of false teachers. And, and it may not have stood out to you right away, um, but it would have been very clear to them by the, by the language that Paul is using here. He calls them dogs and evildoers. Maybe, maybe we could translate that evil workers. And then, most obvious, those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking to a group 
that were known as the Judaizers. Those who claimed to be Christians, they claimed to be followers of Jesus, but they also insisted that to be a true Christian, you must also follow Jewish law. You had to keep the Jewish traditions. And so that word, they're mutilators of the flesh. It's a, it's a nasty little play on words. Uh, Paul is just sharp here. He's taken the, the root word for circumcision and, and kind of morphed it to its, to its most um, ugliest form. Mutilators of the flesh. And then evil workers, he's, he's slamming them, saying you're, you're, you're preaching a works salvation, a salvation by works, and, you're, and it's evil works. And then probably the most biting of all is that he calls them dogs. And, and this is not the word for your, your pet dog, your family dog. This is not the word for Benji or Fufu. Um, this is the word for that mangy, scavenging mutt. And, and it's a word that the proud Jews would often use to describe those Gentiles, the dogs, those outsiders. They're good for nothing. They're of no value. And now Paul's turning that on its head, and he's using it against them. They claim to be these true Christians, the followers of of Jesus. They're saying, we are the the people of God. And he's saying, no, no, you're not. Your circumcision that, that, that once was the sign that you're the people of God, it was this badge of honor that they had, he says, now it's just, it's nothing more than mutilating the flesh. Your dogs. Why? Because they did not rejoice in the Lord, not as they should. It's interesting. We think of those who might call themselves Christians and and not actually be truly saved. Um, We typically think of those who do too little, right? They set the bar of what what constitutes being a Christian too low. And and so we say, you've met your bar, but... But that's not what it means to be a Christian. But here, uh, Paul is not attacking against those who set the bar too low, but rather who set the bar too high. They've done too much. They weren't doing less than Christ commanded. They were doing more. These were, in their own eyes, they were super Christians. They were following Jesus and abstaining from unclean foods. They were following Jesus and circumcising their children and worshiping on the Sabbath, on the proper Lord's Day, and celebrating all the the Jewish feasts and holding to the Torah. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because it's actually a growing movement today, just like this. There's the Seventh-day Adventist church um, that has been doing this for a while. But more recently is this growing movement called the Hebrew Roots Movement. And they they have this this fascination with Jewish customs and traditions and feasts and laws and and saying we need to go back to those. We need to, to revive that. We need to be living according to the Jewish customs. And they're totally missing it. They're totally out of line and misguided, taking the requirements of the old covenant that Jesus fulfilled, that Jesus completed, that do not apply to us, and they're dragging them, kicking and screaming into the new covenant, and then making them burdens on people. It's totally out of place, demanding that Christians ought to practice Jewish customs. 
And, and yes, in, in some ways, Christianity grew up out of the ground of Christianity, but, but we've left behind the shadows. They were pointing to Christ. They're fulfilled in Christ. And so we don't, we don't go back to the shadow. We don't go back to the sign. We have the reality. We ought to be rejoicing in Christ. And Paul directly contradicts these false teachers in verse 3, saying, we are the circumcision. That was the, the name that the, the proud Jews would call themselves. They, they were the circumcision. And, and Paul says, no. No, you are no longer the circumcision. You're just mutilators of the flesh. You don't have the, the stamp of God's approval, the sign of His covenant love. We do. We are the circumcision, not those who obey the law. But verse 3, here's what it looks like to be God's true children who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's a true believer. Who, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Someone who is genuinely, genuinely one of God's chosen people, genuinely saved, genuinely a Christian, is one who worships by the Spirit of God. Now, the, the word worship there um, is a little broader than we would usually wor- use it. We, we often use worship just to speak of singing, and, and certainly that's included here. Um, but the word really just means to serve, who serve God, who have given all of their lives in, in, in worshipful service of Him. But notice, it's not just an outward thing. It's about what's going on. It's the motivation. They worship by the the Spirit of God inside them. It's this transformed life working its way out. The true believer serves God by the Spirit of God working in them and glories in Christ Jesus. We come back to this idea of rejoicing in the Lord. To glory is to, to exalt and to boast and to celebrate Rather than in the things that we have done, we celebrate, we boast in Christ. It's all about Him. It's all about what He has accomplished. They put no confidence in the flesh. The flesh there just means that which is accomplished apart from God. Those things that we do in our own humanity, our hard work, our striving, really doesn't matter if it's related to Jewish tradition or North American Christian customs. The true people of God are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And they're not looking to what their hands have done. But are overjoyed and celebrating what Christ has done. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord rebukes Israel, saying, Because this people draws near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. It's all external. Their hearts are far from him. They're doing the right things. They're, they're saying the right things, but their hearts are far from him. What does it mean to be a true believer? What does that look like? We are so prone to want to answer that question by outward appearance. To see those who are the, the strictest, most rigid, most legalistic. And Paul says, no. No, it's those who worship by the Spirit of God and and those who who exalt in Christ. Do you see that in your own heart? 
How's your rejoicing today? Is there joy in Him? Is there a celebration of Christ, a a worship and service of God that flows from, from the work of the Spirit within you? That's why Paul tells them, rejoice in the Lord. That's safe for you. That's where you need to be. You're guarded there. Rejoicing in the Lord is the, is the antidote against legalism. It's the antidote against all kinds of false religion. So true believers rejoice in the Lord. But he goes on to explain that third point a little more. The end of verse 3, he says they, they put no confidence in the flesh. And then verses 4 to 7 are just unpacking that. What does that mean? They have no confidence in the flesh. And, and, and Paul is kind of anticipating their argument against him. And so he's, he's kind of doubling down. He's kind of repeating himself, but with a new emphasis. So first, true believer rejoices in Christ. But secondly, a, a true believer renounces the flesh. Let's look at verses 4 to 7. Let me read it again for us. Paul says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. So Paul's anticipating These Judaizers who are holding up Jewish law, if he's going to come in and and tear that down and say, no, that that counts for nothing. That's old covenant. That doesn't matter anymore. Um, He's anticipating their argument against him is going to be, it's just because you can't do it. It's because you have no ground to stand. You're going to lose credibility, Paul, because we have these great Jewish accolades and you have none. And Paul says, no way. You want to play that game? I'll play that game all day long. I will win every time. And he he begins to lay out for them what he had according to the flesh. I'm saying don't trust in the flesh, but at the same time you need to recognize I had more flesh to trust in than all of you. And he lays out six things. The first three are according to his heritage, what he was born into. So he says circumcised on the eighth day. So he wasn't he didn't, he didn't come to Judaism later in life as many did and, and, and were then circumcised later. He was born into a faithful, law-keeping family with, with faithful Jewish parents. Not only that, um, of the people of Israel, even the tribe of Benjamin. His lineage is impressive. Benjamin was the favorite son of Israel. Saul, the first king of Israel, was a Benjamite. That's, that's where he got his name. Even uh, Mordecai and Esther, who, who saved Israel um, from destruction in Persia, they were Benjamites. When the kingdom of Israel split after Solomon, north and south, Benjamin stayed uh, with the southern, more faithful kingdom. And actually, within the boundaries of the tribe of Israel was the city of Jerusalem and the temple of God. He came from this prestigious line. Thirdly, he says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. The the Jews in that day, uh, in Paul's day, had been scattered about throughout um, some of the Roman Empire there. And and many of them had just adopted Greek culture. And and they had been um, 
adapted. They, they let go of their, of their Hebrew roots, and, and Paul's family did not. Um, he didn't grow up in Israel. He grew up in Tarsus, just north of that. Um, and yet his family raised him in Hebrew culture, speaking Hebrew and Aramaic, and, and he studied in Hebrew. He had this great upbringing. And so all that together, he had this, this spectacular Hebrew heritage. And not only that, he had significant achievements of his own. It's not just what he had given to him by birth, but he goes on to say, and I became a Pharisee, a teacher in the, in the strictest sect of all Judaism, the, the group that took the law of God at its, at its highest importance, held it to the greatest esteem. That was me. That's where I was. Secondly, he says, as to zeal, um, his passion for Israel, he was actually a violent persecutor of the church. And that was a good thing in his eyes. Um, because he was standing against those who were corrupting the church, who were attacking it, and, and he was so zealous for God that he was giving himself fully to protecting Judaism. And finally, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now he's not claiming that he was actually sinless, but he's saying, according to the Jewish laws laid out, I kept them all. I walked according to them. No one could accuse me of any wrongdoing according to the law. He had it all. He was a religious juggernaut, a giant among giants, and he was still young. He was just up and coming and, and as he says, surpassing the youth in his age. He was on a path to greatness. No doubt as Paul laid out his list, hammer blow after hammer blow, um, these supposed Judaizers, one by one, would have kind of been quietly sliding their resume behind their back. Um, I can't compete with that. Paul had them beat every one. And then look at what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, which was far more than what you have, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. He renounced everything. Everything he had gained by the flesh, every earthly success that he had accumulated by, by birth or by hours upon hours of relentless education and strict discipline, he counted it all as loss. Just think about that. Think about what happened on the road to Damascus when the Lord appeared to him. The transformation of his heart in that moment when Jesus met him. It's unbelievable. It, it would be the the head of PETA taking up hunting and becoming a meat eater. This would be Karl Marx taking leadership of the, the Libertarian Party of America. It just doesn't make sense. It's absolutely contradictory to everything he had given himself to. It wasn't just a change of mind. It was a change of heart. He didn't just begin to think differently. His heart was radically transformed. It's about the heart. Come back to this idea of rejoicing. What did he find joy in? I can't help but think about this because this is where we are in my family. Um, parents, you can raise your kids in, in the strictness of the church and, and bringing them to church and memorizing scripture and all these great things, and you should. But the question is, what's happening in their heart? Are they rejoicing in the Lord? That's what we're looking for. Upon seeing the vision of Jesus Christ, Paul immediately counted as loss everything that he had worked so hard for. Now to be clear, some of those things were good things. Some of them, 
were not. He looked back and and regretted deeply his persecution of the church. He brings that up a number of times in his writing. It's that which leads him to say that he was the, the worst of all sinners. But some of them were not bad. This rich Jewish heritage was a beautiful thing. It was a gift of God to him. And and he continued to love Israel deeply and to weep over them as they rejected Christ. He grew up having memorized the, the first five books of the Bible and studying the rest of the Bible intensely. And you can see that as he writes these letters, that that rich heritage is a great benefit to him. And surely his adherence to the law, his honoring of the Lord was was not a bad thing. But back to the end of verse 3, a true believer puts no confidence in the flesh. When it came to his standing before God, when it came to his credentials, what it meant to be a true believer, when he assessed himself, asking, where do I stand before God? Good or bad, those things are lost. They don't count. They don't matter. He absolutely renounces them as nothing. If you want to know how to assess if someone is a true believer, more importantly, how to, how to test your own heart to know, do I have true saving faith? Ask yourself. If I were to die today and stand before God and God were to ask me, why would I let you into my heaven? What would you say? How would you answer God Almighty, the righteous judge, um, think about it. I'm going to give you a minute. Formulate your answer in your mind. Be ready to, to speak that out if you had to. God is asking you, why should I let you into my heaven? What's your response? Okay, now let me give you a simple test. That answer that you formulated in your mind, if it began with the letter I, as in, I did this, or I did that, it's wrong. It's that simple. It's just wrong, full stop. As, as you say, but, but wait, it was good things, right? I did the right things. I was, I was baptized as a baby, or maybe even as an adult. I was, I was born into a very Christian family. My parents were extremely Christian. I grew up going to to Sunday school. I learned every Bible story there is to learn. I know them all. Or how about this? Even into my adulthood, I have never watched an R-rated movie. I have never tasted alcohol. I have never danced or uttered a single curse word. I go to every prayer meeting, every Sunday night service, um, we do communion at my church every single week. We take we take it so seriously. Or maybe I sold everything that I had. And I I moved overseas and I worked in a hospital in the sweltering heat for for no pay. I gave up everything. I gave my life to serving God. I saved thousands of lives in the name of the Lord. Gave up everything. Can I tell you what Paul would say? Rubbish. It means nothing. If that is where you put your confidence before God, if that's where you place your hope of being justified before Him, it's worthless. No ritual, no pedigree, no upbringing, 
No strict religious standards, no amount of of deep sincerity, no, no right moral behavior or earthly sacrifice counts at all. Shocking, isn't it? Does that leave you feeling a little helpless? A little vulnerable? Maybe a little terrified? It's good. Here's the problem. We're sinners. From the fall of Adam down, every one of us is is born with this, this sin twisted into the core of our hearts and it taints everything we do. We can't escape it. And we're already, by nature, uh, of, of who we are as creatures and who He is as the Creator, um, we owe Him everything. Every breath is His. And, and so even perfect obedience, even the most selfless life, isn't somehow making up for our sin. It doesn't count as positive on your ledger. Even if you could, theoretically, you can't, but even if you could, for one second, one precious second, live in absolute pure devotion to God, giving Him everything that He deserves for one second of your entire life, it wouldn't gain you anything. It, w- it would just be one second out of your life for which you were not accruing more debt of sin. I so identify with Paul. I grew up with my ducks in a row. Daddy was an elder. Mom was a Sunday school teacher. I was helping teach Sunday school before I was even out of Sunday school. I was raised in the church. Uh, every, every evening service, we were there. Every morning service, every prayer meeting. Um, as far as anyone could see, my life was squeaky clean. And God in His mercy had to bring me to my knees to see that as useless, as Loss. That's painful. That's not just humbling, that's crushing. I remember my my Damascus Road moment. There were a lot of tears shed, both in sorrow and in joy. Everything I worked for, my whole identity as as a good Christian, this whole little kingdom that I had built up that was my life, had to be torn down, had to be dug out of my soul like a root canal. Because until I could see those things as loss, I couldn't rejoice in Christ. Until I could see those things for what they were and let go of any gain I thought I had, I couldn't treasure the sacrifice of Christ as I should. You can't rejoice in Him while you're hanging on to those other things. The true believer is marked by rejoicing in Christ and putting no confidence in the flesh. John 6, 63, Jesus says the Spirit gives life and the flesh is of no help at all. Remember the old commercial, the cheery little girl, right? It's shake and bake and I helped. No, it was the Holy Spirit and I didn't help. I didn't help at all. That's what happened to Paul. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he describes it this way. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He once treasured and loved and had all confidence in the flesh. 
his heritage, his achievements. That's where his feet were firmly planted. Look, God, at what I did. And God, by his Spirit who gives life, shone into his heart a light that was the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and it knocked him to the ground, literally and metaphorically. It crushed him. And God tore down everything he saw as precious, everything he loved, everything he had built his life on was charred to dust, laid absolute waste. And then he showed him the glory of Christ. A glory so pure and so bright that he said, that's what I want. That's what I need. That's what I will exalt in and find joy in, find hope in, find confidence in. I count everything as lost if I can just have Christ. Has God done that work in your heart? Look, I I love you, but I don't care if you prayed a prayer. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. I I don't care if you made a decision to follow Jesus. Or if you raised your hand or walked down an aisle. What I care is that God did such a miracle in your heart that you saw the glory of Jesus so clearly that you counted everything else as lost for the sake of knowing Him. That's salvation. If you don't have that, If you don't have that rejoicing in the Lord and putting no confidence in the flesh, rejoicing in Him and and renouncing the flesh, then, then then it doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. The Spirit gives life and the flesh is no help at all. There's nothing else to do. Get on your knees before God. Plead with Him to save you. Read through, write this down, John 3. Read through Romans 3. Ephesians 2, wrestle with that, read it, pray until God opens your eyes to see the glory of Christ. You need Him to shine that light into your heart that that tears down the idols that are there and gives you a vision of Christ. True believer rejoices in Christ and renounces the flesh And then he runs after Christ. Look at verses 8 to 11. Let me read these for us. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's subtle, uh, but it's there. In, in the ESV, it's clear. The NI, NIV, it's not as clear. Um, but there's a change in verb tense here, just to get a little nerdy, but grammar matters. Verse 7, he says, I counted all things as lost. Past tense, that's what happened on that day. God exploded the idols of my heart and he showed me the glory of Christ and I counted all those things as lost. But then verse 8, indeed I count. 
present tense. This is now this ongoing action. This is now the the reality that I live in, continuing to be counting all things as loss. And he repeats himself for emphasis and to clarify, for his sake, for the sake of Jesus, I suffered the loss of all things, and I continue to count them as rubbish, as garbage, as excrement. Why? For the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus in order that I may gain Christ. Two things here. First, you can't have both. You can't hang on, on one hand, to your old efforts and and your, your heritage and all the things that you worked for and have your confidence partly tied to earthly gain and still have Jesus. Jesus doesn't, isn't the cherry on top. You can't have, this is my life. I'm going to carry on the way that I was going, and I'm just going to add Jesus. I'm just going to invite Jesus along for the ride. Yeah, I know Jesus. I'll meet him at the end of the road when I die. He's going to save me on that day, and it doesn't work that way. Paul said, I continue on counting everything as loss. I didn't one day pray a prayer of repentance, and then I'll see Jesus again. It's continuing to repent, continuing to count as loss and seek after knowing him. Put no confidence, no hope in earthly things so that I may know him now. So I may walk with him in the present tense. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. Are you losing your life for the sake of Christ? Is it all about seeking him? Taking up your cross, counting all things as loss, day after day, and seeking Him, following Jesus. If you try to keep your life, that old life of prestige and honor and worldly gain and the the efforts of the flesh, you can't have Jesus. You don't have Him. In order to have that life, there has to be a death to self, a laying down of all things that I once counted precious. But then secondly... On the other side of death to self is true life. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, that's what this is all about. To know Christ, to really know Him, that, that's the mountaintop of this, of this passage. That's the thing that, that, that surpasses everything else. Paul is willing to give everything else up to gain. It's Him, the knowledge of Jesus. Jesus himself actually says, John 17, 3, this is eternal life to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life, and, 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 and that's eternal um, not just in length, not just in span, but in depth. It's eternal in its length, but it's also eternal in its fullness and its joy and its completeness. That eternal life is to know God. In Jesus Christ. That's what we're after. And here's where it starts giving up on the righteousness of our own, the righteousness that we could try to gain by obeying the law. Do you see that? Not a righteousness of my own by the law, by doing good things, receiving rather instead a righteousness from Jesus, a righteousness that's not earned, that's not worked for, because that worked-for righteousness never gains us anything. We need a righteousness that is a gift from God. 
and it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It comes by trusting Him, looking to Him, rejoicing in Him. And having that righteousness, we can then have peace with God, a a peace that we never could have gained for ourselves. We're reconciled to God. Our relationship is restored. We gain Christ. And look at the outcome then, verses 10 and 11. That I may know Him. That's the ultimate goal. That I may know Him. And to know Him is to know the power of His resurrection. The power of His resurrection is the, is the power on the, the other side of death. Yes, it is about my, my life after death, being resurrected again, spending eternity in heaven with Him. Um, but it's more than that. It's also the resurrection power now. Living to know Him now. Romans 6, 4. It says, We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Right now, walking in eternal life, walking in true fellowship, relationship with Christ, knowing Him, and to know the, the, the newness of life in His resurrection power, here and now, to be running after Him, continuing to count all things as loss, and walking in obedience and trust and love for Him. But notice also what that looks like. Those who would try to impress God with their efforts, those who strive for legalism and and morality to, to please God and they stack up all of their works, they almost invariably will say to God, now you owe me. You owe me a life of ease. You owe me a life of health, a life of comfort, a life that is free from sickness. And and as soon as hardship comes, they turn in bitterness towards God. How dare you, God? I did this and this and this, and you have abandoned me. You let this hardship come in. What did I do all that for? But those who rejoice in the Lord, those who find their safety there, who are guarded by a heart that is rejoicing in Him, They're simply amazed at the grace of God toward them. Look at what they say. I want to know Him. That I may know Him in the, the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings and become like Him in His death. What? What about the resurrection power? Shouldn't that resurrection power rescue us from all of that? Shouldn't it be the end of this whole mess? But my goal is to know Him. My goal is to have fellowship with Jesus. And where's Jesus? Where do I find Him? Well, He was despised and rejected by men. He was humble and poor in this world. He gave Himself to death for others. That's that's where He is. So if I want to have fellowship with Him, then I must have fellowship, and and that's the word that's used here, koinonia, the fellowship in his suffering, becoming like him in his suffering, even in his death. That's the way of a true believer. It's not escape from suffering. It's not pull me out of this. It's, God, where are you in this? How do I know Christ in this? Because that's my goal. That's what I'm after. And we see this time and time again, Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit 
They were children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And we want to stop there, right? And you'll hear these false teachers saying, we're heirs with God, we have all good things, we'll have wealth and health and prosperity, but keep reading, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. How do you have fellowship with God? And that's Romans 8, 16. We're heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. Hebrews 13, 12 to 14 says the same thing. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. There's huge Old Testament significance to that statement. Outside the camp, outside of the city, the place of disgrace and shame. Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people of his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek a city to come. We, we, we go to Jesus outside the gate of this worldly city, outside the camp in a place of shame and reproach in this worldly city, because that worldly city is not our home. We have another city where Christ is. And so we go to him in suffering. One more verse Paul says here in our passage He wants to become like him in his death. And the word he uses there is morphe, taking the form of him. It's the same word that Paul used repeatedly back in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, the morphe of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form, the morphe of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The true believer doesn't demand, get me out of here, rescue me doesn't even seek the the easy way out. I just want health. I just want to escape. I want the life of comfort, the life of prestige in this life. But willingly sacrifices, willingly gives up comfort and honor and prestige to follow Christ in humility and sacrificial service because there's fellowship with Him there. That's where I have closeness with Christ. That's where I see Him. That's where He's near to me. And this isn't my home. This isn't what I'm looking forward to. This was never going to fulfill my desires. Only Christ will do that. And look, none of us are going to suffer the way Paul suffered for Jesus. Beatings, stonings, hunger, shipwreck, imprisonment, probably beheading. But even as we go through this current time of, let's be honest, fairly minimal hardship how are you tempted to demand what are you tempted to say god i did all this for you i went to church i i gave in the offering i helped the poor you owe me i better not get this virus god you owe me i better not lose my job god you owe me Are you rejoicing in Christ? Are you able to see the surpassing worth of knowing Christ above anything else? And if he leads me through suffering and I have fellowship with him there, then praise the Lord. Rejoice in him. 
glory in Christ Jesus and seek his fellowship all the more, a deeper, richer, more personal walk and faith in him through any trial. And as we sacrifice what little we have, loving others the way he did, rejoicing in him, so that, as Paul says here in verse 11, that by any means possible, and it's not a statement of doubt of whether or not it will happen, it's, it's just a, a matter of however it may happen, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Or, or back in Romans 8, where we started sharing in his suffering, that we may also be glorified with him. Or Hebrews 13, going outside the gate, leaving the comfort of this world because we seek a city, a home that is to come, a home in heaven where He is, where we will see His face, where we'll be with Him. A true believer worships, serves God by the Spirit of God, glories in Jesus Christ and puts no confidence in the flesh, continuing to to count everything as loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's our hope. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that we have a hope that supersedes anything this world may bring. Lord, I pray for those this morning who have their hearts set on the things that they have done. Look at my life. Look at how hard I've worked, the the morality I have, the things that I've done. Oh God, would you graciously crush them? Would you bring them to their knees to a place of absolute hopelessness that they might treasure Christ as they ought to? that they might see and know Him. Lord, You know our hearts. We're so prone to go back, to return, to to finding confidence in the flesh. Lord, we want to serve You in the Spirit. We want to honor You with our lives, but God, that our hope would never be in that, but that we would rejoice in Christ, that we would cry out, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. God, help us. And Lord, as trials come, as they will, as you have promised they will, Lord, don't let us buck against them. Guard our hearts, rejoicing in Christ. And we might embrace whatever comes that we might have fellowship with Christ in his suffering, knowing that you meet us there, trusting that that you're sovereign and that you will provide every good thing that we need, not to have joy in this world, but to have joy in Christ. And sometimes the good thing we need is trial. So God, we love you, we trust you. We want to see more of your glory and rejoice more in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.